Uh, my job was basically to mingle about smartly. I mean, after we pulled all these big ass lines uh, off the pier and pulled them, pulled them back on the ship. Anza, the Coast Guard years, Key West, episode 12, dry dock and bug juice. One of the coolest things to happen in the shipyard was when a member of the shipyard crew, a scuba diver, went into the water basically to inspect the ship and record what he saw. He was under for a long while, and believe it or not, the Coast Guard has a procedure for this as well. Over the ship's one MC, or the ship's one main circuit, it well, so that thing is like basically, the one MC that is, is basically just like a public address system. They use it to transmit uh, information across the whole ship. It was really freaking loud. It was so loud that if you were outside the ship, you could hear it as well, and probably for like miles away from the ship. I mean, maybe not miles, but anyway. This guy's in the water, so you had to make an announcement every 15 minutes over the ship's 1MC. And so I had to look this up, and uh, I think it's right, or it's pretty close to being uh, right. So it, it went something like this. There are divers working over the side. Do not operate any underwater equipment. Rotate screws, cycle rudders, take suction from or discharge to the sea without first contacting the officer of the deck and the diving supervisor. Well, it went something like that, at least. It didn't really seem like we needed to do that. I mean, we weren't going anywhere. We couldn't dump anything in the water either. So all of the ship, well, so while you're in port, uh, assuming that, you know, you are in the kind of port that has facilities, the ship's utilities were all connected to it. So it got all its electricity, its phones, sewage, all that kind of stuff. You know, we went right to whatever thing there was on the, 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 at the dock to take care of it. So while this guy was underwater, and like I said, he was down there for a while, he noted that like all the other Coast Guard ships that had come into Curtis Bay, the ship's hull was pitted. And by that, I mean, it was rusted. It was rusted really freaking bad. Now, I'm thinking to myself, I'm on a rust bucket. Like, this thing could be leaking. And the reason why I'm thinking it could be leaking, because, you know, back home, we had like this old rusted uh, wheelbarrow. And it had been rusted pretty badly, and it basically had a hole in it. Uh, we actually, we, some, by we, I mean my dad, eventually patched it, which it worked great uh, for that. But I'm on a ship. A ship, it, it could be a sinking ship. I had no idea. And that's not something I wanted to be in, a sinking ship. But so as it turns out, they said, oh, you know what? The ship's hull needs to be sandblasted and repainted. I'm like, yeah, right. How the fuck are we going to do that? And who is going to do that? That seems like what? That seems like it's going to take a shit ton of time and effort. I wanted nothing to do with that. And it wasn't long before I learned what would happen next. I heard they were going to put the ship into dry dock. I had no idea what that was, but I acted like I knew what it was, or I acted like I didn't not know what it was. But you get, you get the idea. So, as a leading seaman, 
I guess I was expected to know this stuff, or I, I had no idea. I, I was fucking clueless. So, dry dog. It's, it's basically a feat of crazy-ass magic engineering shit. I'm not entirely sure of the whole mechanic behind it, but essentially the shipyard had a ginormous structure submerged in the water, and basically the ship was moved into the middle of it. I remember standing on the flight deck while um, this whole thing was starting to happen. There were a few tugboats around that pushed our ship into position, and the next thing you know, we were rising up out of the water. It was like something out of a movie. It was really cool. I mean, it was the weirdest thing, though. I mean, before you know it, we were completely out of the water, and the ship was resting on a bunch of big-ass wooden blocks. Now, from my perspective, that seemed really damn scary that we were balanced on these giant wooden blocks. I mean, you remember Lincoln Logs when you were a kid? Or those blocks with letters on them when you were a kid? And you try to make like little pyramids from the, the blocks with the letters on it. And of course, it was always rickety and just like the Lincoln Logs you build, they were always really kind of rickety. It was wood. This was wood that was submerged underwater. Now, you know as well as I do that when shit is submerged underwater, wood that is, it begins to rot. What? And all I'm thinking is, we're resting on rotten blocks. That's all I, I, I couldn't, that's, that, how is this possible? But anyway, okay, so it was still pretty freaking cool. I, I didn't get to actually go underneath the ship, but you could see like the blocks from the shore, shore, really, I don't Again, all this was kind of weird because by the time, so to get off the ship, you crossed over the brow and you did the saluting, all that kind of stuff you were supposed to, and I'll get into that a little bit later. And then you basically walk down these really long flight of metal stairs to get to the actual shore. But okay, I'm, I'm t totally, yeah, totally um, going off topic here. So I, I did actually get to see the bottom of another Coast Guard cutter a couple of years later, and I'll, I'll get into that too because uh, that's a totally different story. And I even got close to the keel of the ship, and the keel's like the very, 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 very bottom of the ship. And so I'll, I'll get to that later. It was totally cool. And um, yeah, don't don't roll your eyes at me that I'm not going to tell you about it because I know you're rolling your eyes. And uh, if I told you, you wouldn't keep listening, and that would really bum me out. And um, yeah, so anyway, I got I got a couple of things to babble about first, and then we'll get to all that later. So as I mentioned previously, we were there for four months at the Curtis Bay Shipyards. And during that time, they sandblasted the ship to get rid of all the rust and fix it all up. When they sandblasted, I mean, sand got everywhere. And I mean everywhere. It was so bad, I, think, I don't think they even allowed us outside of the ship when they were sandblasting. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that's, that, that was it. Maybe I'm wrong, but I, I feel like we never got to leave the ship when it, um, they were actively sandblasting. Or maybe they had put giant plastic everywhere. I don't know. I mean, this is such a long time ago. Yeah, and the ship, the shipyard workers, they also painted the outside of the ship too. Because I, I just couldn't fathom how the hell we, as a bunch of seamen, <laughs> that really is, that is funny. Uh, I have no idea how we would have painted it ourselves. I mean... Can you imagine the thousands of paint rollers we would have had to have used to make that happen? I mean, the 
shipyard workers ended up using some sort of, you know, spray guns to, to paint the ship. And I can only imagine how long that fucking took those guys. I mean, there's was probably dozens of dudes painting all at the same time. I had no idea. But anyway, anyway so eventually the ship was put back into the water, uh, which is still kind of cool because, you know, everything had to drop. You know, I wondered how they painted the sections that were... Uh, you know, sitting on the blocks. Did they move the blocks, the wooden blocks, in the when in in the middle of the night or something? Because that's that's kind of scary too. That they were moving if, if they moved the blocks while we were on it. Again, yeah, it's just all kinds of weird mechanical engineering magic these people were doing. It's, it's, it, I, I don't think they ever get the real credit that they deserve because it. I had no idea. It just magically happened, which is pretty badass. Now, during this four months, I was learning seamanship shit. That still makes me giggle. I don't know why. Uh, we were standing watches on the ship. And basically, when you're in the shipyard, standing watch for a seaman basically meant you would make rounds around the ship and making sure there were no fires and the ship wasn't flooding. Not that I actually was there to prevent the fires or prevent the flooding. It was our job, my job. Uh, at times to sound the alarm if that shit was actually happening. Also, so when you're making rounds too, or while you're on duty on a ship, I mean, there's a ton of things that you do, and maybe at some point I'll remember to talk about it uh, when you're underway, that is, not in the shipyard. Uh, but the, at the end of the day, before you as a member of the duty, well, what, what I, yeah, duty section, that's what it was, duty section. So before uh, a member of the duty section could actually turn in for the night, you usually had to wait till you know, taps or 10 p.m. or 2200. The officer of the day would, you know, gather the um, the section leads, you know, the engineering lead, the master at arms. I forgot who else. Um, but there were also people who were restricted to the ship uh, that had to show up as well. That was kind of like the master at arms job to make sure that person showed up. If that person didn't show up, that would be really bad. Because uh, when you're on a ship in the water, there's really only one way off the ship that didn't involve you jumping into the water. And that one place usually was the quarterdeck. Now, there were, there were times where I had hopped off the ship in port in another location. I'll talk about that later. Honestly, I, I hope I remember all this stuff. I should write this stuff down. So yeah, and if some if the the person who was on restricted restricted to the ship wasn't there, and usually you got restricted to the ship because you did something stupid and you got in trouble, and the captain of the ship was like, "Yeah, you're stuck on the ship for a while," and uh, but you didn't really need to leave. I mean, we were in the shipyard, so what are you going to do? Not much. And you had you had everything. You got fed. You had a place to sleep. I mean. Life is pretty good for you. I mean, it's kind of like being in prison, actually. So, yeah, anyway. So, the the officer of the day, the OOD, would go through this whole thing and make sure that everybody was there. There was some saluting that went on, I think, and that was pretty much it. But if the restricted person got off the ship, um, then the petty officer of the watch, the, who was at the quarterdeck person, he or she would be in a shit ton of trouble— if that person wasn't there, and I think probably the master at arms would probably get in a lot of trouble too. Um, yeah. 
By the way, did I mention that they announced taps over the ship's 1MC at 2200 hours? Now, that re- I really thought that was kind of weird and odd. They basically make this announcement at 10 p.m. over the ship's 1MC to basically tell you to shut the hell up. That it's quiet time kind of ironic or more like moronic if you ask me one of the things that you learn as um, a seaman or seamanship skills uh, at least while you're on a coast guard ship was you got to learn to be a mess cook on a coast guard ship or sometimes it they just called it mess duty but essentially mess cook duty now this didn't mean you actually cooked. As a matter of fact, you never cooked shit. Maybe maybe some toast or something, but that, that was about it. Your job basically was to help out the real cooks, the ship's SSs, what they were called then, subsistence specialists. I think I got that right. So there were basically three types of mess cooks. Uh, one of the crappiest types was the mess cook who was responsible for the main galley. Uh, there was usually... I think two of those folks, maybe. I don't know. They were the ones that were there to make sure that the crew had everything they needed during the meals. Like, make sure there was always coffee, uh, eating utensils, napkins, and bug juice. Now, bug juice basically was this imitation, nasty Kool-Aid type of drink that they put in these ginormous containers. I mean, they might have been like three or three-gallon containers, I think. And um, they ran like air through them, so the, the the it always looked like it was moving. I think maybe, maybe I'm just imagining that part. But okay, so I don't even know why they called it bug juice. It it I, I don't know. It was just it was horrible. It basically was just flavored sugar water, and there always was like some type of red looking bug juice. And it I don't yeah. What was it supposed to be like bug blood or something? I don't know. And then they had sometimes this yellowish stuff that I, I guess was supposed to be like lemonade. It looked more like urine, perhaps. Um, maybe not. Maybe. Yeah, but I'm telling you, it did not taste like lemonade. And I almost always stayed away from it unless, you know, I had um, I needed a sugar high or something like that. Then, But um, I usually stayed away from that, though. It just was always gross. Then there was another type of mess cook. It was the one assigned to the chief's mess. And the chief's mess is where all the E7s and above would eat. I mean, if you were in the chief category, that is. Um, I think there was, it it would sit 12 people. It was, it always felt like it was kind of a small room. At least that's what I seem to recall. Um, I rarely went there. I hated going into that, that little spot because they had like their own eating area separate from the rest of the crew. I always felt like whenever I went there, it just was an opportunity for all the chiefs to just, well, basically just to fuck with you somehow. I really didn't understand why. It's just they were always such assholes. Uh, but I think they actually tipped, like, cash to whoever that mess cook was as a um, as payment for them being fuckwads half the time. And then there were wardroom mess cooks. Now, depending on your particular disposition, this could either be a fucking nightmare gig or a cakewalk. 
For me, it turned out to be mostly a cakewalk. I was paired up with another seaman um, to work the wardroom. So there was two of us. Uh, this guy was prior service, Army, I believe. And, uh, he, you know, he never came across as the sharpest tool in the shed. I mean, he came from the Army. Yeah, I know, you Army guys. If you're anyone's listening, you're rolling your eyes. and You just want to kick my ass right now. But, yeah, this dude, he was a decent guy, though. Um, he had a big old beer gut, though. And he always came across as being kind of super lazy. Um, but, you know, he just, I think he just kind of did things at his own pace. And he was never really in a hurry. Um, honestly, I didn't think I'd get along with him. I was surprised at how well we did get along. One of the things that we had to do uh, as a wardroom mess cook, and we took turns doing this, by the way, is you had to get up with the crack of fucking dawn like every day. You needed to get the wardroom set up for breakfast. So while the rest of the uh, ship's crew ate from big plastic trays, the officers ate from real plates and used actual silverware. And by silverware, I mean, I think it was real silver that they used. Um, and depending on the officers who you had to serve, breakfast was really easy. Some of them just ate cereal. Some of them uh, had eggs and some of them had it in a very specific way in omelets and whatnot. Uh, you basically learned what each officer liked and what they didn't like, and you kind of anticipated what they wanted. It also helped, too, that the prior wardroom mess cook, um, so was the, one of my friends, um, Seaman Dan, I mentioned from previous uh, episodes, he basically, he was a wardroom mess cook before us, and he basically told us everything we needed to know as far as what specific officers uh, liked and didn't like. Occasionally, something would come out of the kitchen that didn't meet the standards or quality that the officer wanted, so you had to send it back. And, of course, if you sent it back, we would get yelled at by the mess cooks or the chief cook um, because, you know, basically we are the messenger, right? So we, we, we would get yelled at. You just kind of learn to roll with it because um, this one particular chief, he just always freaked the fuck out. He was, he was the one that freaked out when we were loading um, the frozen fish that was thawing out and not frozen anymore. Yeah, he, this this guy was this this guy really was freaking mental. I'm not even sure how he even stayed in the Coast Guard. I'm sure he, I'm sure he's retired by now. But anyway, so the important thing about being a wardrobe mess cook was listening. If you were lucky, you became friendly with the officers. And let me tell you, that totally paid off in a big way. Now you couldn't be friends with the officers, um, but you could get well acquainted with them. And since you also, as a wardrobe mess cook, you needed to clean their staterooms. Believe me, that was not a fun job. Um, but you got to learn a lot of their habits and also a little bit of, you know, how they were when they were not out, you know, and about being officers. I mean, sometimes they'd leave stuff out and it reminded you that they are basically normal people. That had to keep up appearances because, well, they were officers and, you know, you're supposed to respect them and follow their orders and all that kind of cool shit. Now, most of the officers on the Thetis were pretty decent people. Uh, in particular, there was one officer, um, engineering officer, 
or one of the engineering officers. He wasn't the engineering officer. Um, and the engineering officer um, normally went by the title of EO, Echo Oscar for you military types, but EO for engineering officer. I don't remember this guy's name. He was, um, had red hair and a mustache. And um, I know he was pretty important. I think he was like the damage control officer or something like that. I don't know. I really didn't know much about anything at the time. Um, and before the shipyards, for some reason. So while we were there, we were supposed to be learning ship damage control system stuff. And um, I, look, I was too busy as being a screw up uh, to do any of that. And I didn't even know where to start. So before we left the shipyard, I think that there was like all this um, requirements we had to do. And we had a sheet of paper that we had to have filled out and all that kind of stuff. And I think somebody actually had to review it and sign off on it. I mean, I'm sure somebody did. I'm just not sure who was supposed to be signing off on stuff. Uh, and one of the big things that you had to learn actually was the ship's fire main system, which I had no clue about. I mean, I barely knew what a ship's fire main system was. Uh, but essentially, for the uninitiated, the ship's fire main system is essentially the, um, well, the fire main, the system that was used to put out fires on the ship. And it was fed by, well, seawater. Because when you're out in the middle of the ocean, you get a ship's fire. The, um, well, your water, you had an endless water supply of seawater. So it kind of makes sense. Um, anyway, so you, you were supposed to go through, um, through the ship, you know, and um, look for the fire main system and uh, basically map it out and trace it out on a piece of paper. The whole idea is it was meant to be an exercise so you would actually learn uh, where all the different valves are and if you had to turn things on, shut things off, and all that kind of cool stuff. I never did it, at least not in any meaningful way. I never really figured it out. Most because uh, well, I was just being lazy and I didn't know what the hell I was doing or looking for. And I remember we had like, or I had one week left, or I thought I had one week left um, to get it all done. And uh, I was also at the point where I was almost done being a mess cook and I needed someone to sign it off. Didn't know what I was supposed to be doing. I didn't know. I mean, I did not know any of the basic damage control stuff, which is terrible. So sort in a kind of a last ditch effort, uh, I went to the redhead engineering officer. Honestly, he was one of the few officers that would give you the time of day. But he was always really quiet, uh, which is kind of cool. He was a total introvert. Or maybe he was just a different breed of officers that didn't let this officer shit go to his head. I don't know. But I went to him for help, and he sort of gave me the business that I needed to do it by myself and blah, 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 blah. But then I don't know where he started asking me basic questions. And then he realized I didn't know shit. The next thing that happened sort of 
surprised me. Really unexpected. He um, he asked for the paper that I had in my hand, and um, so he started going over it. And for each thing I had to know, he would ask me questions. And when I didn't know it, he talked me through it. He was basically being a teacher, which was awesome. He told me everything that I should know and why those things were important. He even took the shitty drawing that I had done up to this point. He made a ton of corrections. And then from memory, he started mapping and drawing it out, talking to me about the specific areas and things. And again, why those things were important. Then he kind of gave me like a pop quiz. Um, but, you know, it was one of those pop quizzes that you, he, you know he meant for you to pass it. He took the time to teach me, which is really amazing. And then he looked over at me and he, you know, signed it off and all this kind of cool stuff. Well, I couldn't help but feel a little guilty but happy uh, that he did what he did for me. And uh, God, I really wish I could remember this, uh, this guy's name because he was really cool and he was a good man. And I don't think I ever told him how much I appreciated what he had done for me. I mean, I think I said thank you a whole bunch of times, but it really didn't occur to me later until much later, in fact, what a cool he, what a, what a cool, guy, cool guy he was, and I'm having a hard time speaking. So while we're in the shipyard, I also learned something called a a, a bosun's pipe. Now, essentially, um, the bosun's pipe is a this, it's basically a weird looking whistle. That's what it is, a weird looking whistle. You use the bosun's pipe as sort of a way to get people's attention when you were using the one MC. I mean, it was kind of a cool thing to learn to do, and, um, and especially when I started making ship's announcements, because I did that as a leading seaman, you were, I, that was one of the things you were expected to do. But I was always worried I would fuck it up and get into all kinds of trouble. The, the, the term or phrase was uh, something like, hey, Gonzo, can you pipe it's time for lunch or pipe dinner or something like that? I think it might have been more like, can you pipe the afternoon meal or the evening meal? I don't think they ever called it lunch or dinner. I mean, I don't know. What's the difference? Lunch, afternoon meal, dinner, evening meal. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that there was some real reason why we actually never called it lunch or dinner. The Bosun's pipe essentially was just a sort of traditional thing you did in the Coast Guard to get people's attention. And it, I really don't know what value it was other than it was this crazy ass whistle that, well, it got everyone's attention. I guess it was better than saying, hey, you motherfuckers, listen up. Uh, but I guess that was sort of what it really did. Uh, but it was just some weird seagoing tradition thing that um, the Coast Guard probably continues to do today. Another tradition that I think is also um, probably still done today and probably will always be done today is whenever the ship's captain left the boat, the ship's captain left the boat, ship, I should have said the boat's captain or the ship's captain, what, 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 anyway, I'm just babbling here. You didn't actually pipe that the ship's captain left, you rang a bell. And so you would grab the one MC and 
most of the time it was the um, petty officer um, at the quarterdeck that actually would do that because he, he or she was the one that actually saw the, the, the ship's captain leaving. Now, I think on the Thetis, they were all dudes. Um, I think all the petty officers were, that were on duty were dudes. I could be wrong about that. But they'd get on the 1MC, one and uh, so it went something like this. Um, when you saw the captain making his way to, um, you know, the, the gangway, the brow, to leave, um, as, you know, he, he would salute the, um, the quarterdeck, he would salute the flag, and then he would step off the quarterdeck. And then somebody would grab the one MC and they'd ring the bell that was at the quarterdeck twice and announce, and in this case, you know, we're on the Thetis. So somebody would say, now Thetis departing. Then you'd wait and kind of watch the captain until his foot touched uh, the shore. And then you would ring the bell two more times. And then you would say, now Thetis ashore. And I guess that was so everyone knew that the captain was gone. I mean, I mean, because it basically that left the XO in charge of the ship, or um, and if the XO was already gone, then it would be the officer of the deck who was in charge. Um, anyway, something like that, I guess. I mean, there might be some other weird thing, like maybe the engineering officer, if that person was still on board, would be in charge in emergencies or something like that. Um, so, yeah. One of the other things being in the uh, shipyards in Curtis Bay, Maryland, was that I was actually kind of fairly close to home, at least comparatively from when I was in um, Newport, Rhode Island. Um, being in Maryland was really kind of close to home. Now, the the, the trip home was, was a little bit long and involved. Um I would get a ride to the Amtrak station that was somewhere near Baltimore. Uh, it might have been near the airport, actually. And then I'd jump on the uh, the Amtrak train, and then I would take that train to New Carrollton, Maryland. And sometimes that uh, trip would be short. Sometimes it would be long because it always seemed like there was a delay or some scheduling problem with the train. But... So I would take that train, and that train would um, take me, to, take me uh, to New Carrollton. And from there, I'd hop off, and there was a another train, uh, the Washington, D.C. Metro, which uh, basically was just a, a subway system. I'd hop on the Orange Line and take the Orange Line all the way to Vienna, Virginia. So from New Carrollton, Maryland to Vienna, Virginia. And that was, I think that was about an hour-long ride. Now, the weird thing is I would just tell some one of my family members, you know, call them up and say, hey, I'm coming home. I should be home about X time. Well, X time wasn't always, you know, specific or exact because of the, uh, the issues with the Amtrak train. Now, usually one of my family members was there to pick me up at the Vienna Metro Station um, mostly it was my younger brother who would pick me up. 
I can always tell what kind of mood he was going to be in based on how late I actually was. Sometimes he'd be sitting there waiting like half an hour or an hour because and I, I, I wasn't there yet. So I always knew he was going to be pretty pissed off at me. But sometimes if I showed up early, which is very rare, or he was late, whatever the case was, um, he was, he'd, he'd be in a good mood. And, and, but most times he was kind of pissed off because he was always having to wait. And I really can't blame him for being pissed off, but, um, you know, whatever. Now, one of the times, um, that I went home was during Thanksgiving, but before I get into that, uh, I wanted to mention that sometime after the, we left the Coast Guard shipyards, um, the Thetis sort of went through what's called a pre-commissioning ceremony. During all of that, it, we, we made the rounds going to other ports of call up, uh, up and down the, um, the East Coast, mostly in the Northeast. And then we started heading down South a little bit. Um, but we were still in the Maryland area around Thanksgiving time. So, yeah, we were already pre-commissioned at this point and technically not in the shipyards when I went home for Thanksgiving. So now that I think about it, I'm going to hold off telling the Thanksgiving part um, a little bit until we get to uh, some other stuff, um, and which is what I'm going to do now. Once the Thetis was ready to leave the shipyard, everything was all buttoned up, it was time to leave the Coast Guard Yard in Curtis Bay. I don't know, it was morning or afternoon or something like that. I don't know. A bunch of us were up on the deck doing our jobs. I think we might have gotten underway in the middle of the day. I mean, it was kind of a big deal that we were leaving because whenever, a, you know, a ship gets done in the Coast Guard shipyards, it's like a big deal. So one of the tugboats um, that was there to help escort us out was a uh, was a Coast Guard tugboat, and I believe it was one of the tugboats that was there when we actually came in. And so it was kind of cool that they were there to see us off. I mean, it's kind of a cool deal. The, the crew was, um, well, everyone was a little bit excited, a little nervous all at the same time. And uh, so everyone knew their jobs. My job as a leading seaman during this evolution of, you know, unmooring from um, the pier. Uh, my job was basically to mingle about smartly. I mean, after we pulled all these big ass lines uh, off the pier and pulled them, pulled them back on the ship, uh, that was pretty much in my job. We were, so I just kind of hung out in the flight deck and, um, you know, we pulled away from the pier and we were heading out up, um, heading north up the Curtis Creek, there's a Coast Guard tugboat, as I mentioned, was just behind us, you know, a couple hundred feet or yards or something like that. Uh, I'm on the flight deck with, like, most of the other crew at this point because, like I said, we didn't have any jobs, really, after we pulled away from the port, just kind of hang out and wait. The Kind of the cool thing is there were people on the pier waving at us, and then there were people – so we were, we were going underneath this, this bridge – and I think it was Interstate 695 for those of you who live in the uh, Maryland area. People had stopped on the bridge to see us leave. And these people are waving. And 
I, I guess there was some weird path that took people from the bridge down to um, kind of under the bridges. There's like, I guess like an, um, uh, an area to stand on above, you know, to watch and stuff like that. All these people that are leaving it was really kind of cool. And um, so as we got closer to the bridge, all of a sudden you, 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 you people were pointing at us and then they started like backing away from there where they were standing. And I'm not sure. Um, I mean, I didn't know what was going on. And but then I, I think everybody sort of saw it on the ship all at the same time. We were headed right for the fucking bridge. I mean, we were about to hit one of the massive columns that was holding up a section of the bridge. And it's like everyone simultaneously realized what was happening. And then the ship started shaking violently. It was like you could hear the engines and the and you can hear the, the, the ship just rattling. It was freaking crazy. And then you felt this big bump behind the ship. So the ship shook some more, and then there were these crew members that I forgot to mention. Um, they were holding these giant bumpers. I mean, uh, they looked like, well, giant oblong or cylinders, uh, and but, but basically they were bumpers. And um, they these people were running up to the bow of the ship with these giant bumpers. Uh, and so they— Hung them over the side. And they had these. They were holding on with these ropes with them, and then you, we, 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 we hit um, this column, and these bumpers. You know, thankfully, the crew members got there in time because um, it definitely uh, cushioned some of the impact. But then y- you felt the ship hit it, and you started hearing the squealing, which is the rubber against this. The, the rubber scraping against or rubbing against the hull and um, oh, it was freaking crazy. So yeah, we hit the damn bridge and the people on the bridge were like freaking out like they, they had to have been worried and really fucking confused like the rest of us were. Um, and so the ship, the reason the ship was shaking violently was because somebody on the bridge, I guess, jammed the ship into reverse and uh, the bump in the back of the ship was the tugboat that was behind us, sort of giving us a love tap. Now, when the tugboat bumped the ship, it hit the, the rear starboard side of the ship. And it basically, I guess the idea was it was trying to push the starboard side of the ship to the left, which would basically pull the port side of the ship, the bow, away from the bridge. And so I think that's kind of what happened. It's a good thing he was there. Um, it, it, it was a good deal. Uh, the sounds up front again were the, um, the, the, the massive bumpers that were uh, used to impact the ship. Um, I, I'm pretty sure the people that were holding the bumpers were scared shitless. Um, we were all kind of freaked out. And, of course, I'm thinking – well, fuck, how much damage did that, what happened? How much damage is there? Is there a big dent in it? Because this is a little bit more than your average fender bender that you have in your car. So, obviously, we were all wondering what the fuck happened. 
I'm going to try to explain it the same way it was told to me. So, because clearly I got a, I got firsthand information. Well, secondhand, because somebody on the bridge is one that told me what happened. So, here we go. So, there's this petty officer, Pete. I think that's his first name, not his last name. Um, yeah, I remember his last name. So, we'll just call him Petty Officer Pete. So, Petty Officer Pete was at the helm when we were leaving port. And the officer of the deck calls out, helmsman, make your rudder right 15 degrees. And Petty Officer Pete replies back, sir, helm, um, make my rudder right 15 degrees or something like that. And then, you know, after he puts his rudder over the thingy, he calls back, sir, my rudder is right 15 degrees. And then apparently a few moments later, the people on the bridge of I-695 started pointing at the ship and the Thetis is headed for the column. The officer of the deck calls out, Helmsman, how is your rudder? Petty officer Pete responds, sir, my rudder is right. And a pause. And then very loudly said, sir, my rudder is left 15 degrees. And at this point, the ship's captain takes control of the ship. He ordered the ship into full reverse, which caused the ship to basically go into fucking convulsions and to uh, left full rudder to pull us away from the colliding Brit, from us colliding into the bridge. Well, that's when we got the kiss in the ass from the tugboat to help push us away from the, um, the column on the bridge. Suffice to say, we all survived, but um, damn it. That had literally, they they had literally put a fresh coat of white paint on the ship. And now there's a big ass fucking weird looking grease streak on the port side ship's bow. Oh, and uh, yeah. So I think from that day until, who the fuck knows, maybe even now, that petty officer is known as Wrong Way Pete, like forever. You've been listening to Guns of the Coast Guardiers Key West, written and produced by Tim Gonzalez, and I'm Nicholas Gonzalez, the voice guy. Join us next week for another episode of Gonzo the Coast Guardiers. <laughs>